You're listening to the Fire in a Hole podcast with Richard and Jason, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and a cast. If you want to keep the show free and help us keep the lights on, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. If you have ideas for the show, we'd like to come on the show, uh, don't hesitate to drop us a line at Podcast at gmail.com. That's Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Fire in the Hole, everybody. On this week's episode, we have Corbett Matthews, documentary filmmaker, globetrotter, and Jason's favorite college professor. And he comes to talk to us a little bit about documentary versus fiction, um, adventures, filming uh, in India, and some of his favorite documentaries. Uh, we also go off on some tangents. So, of course, Trump makes an appearance. We talk about North, North Korean Netflix, uh, teleportation, cryogenics, you know, the usual. Corbett's most recent work, the India Space Opera, is available on Super Channel and Rogers On Demand. Um, there's a screening coming up in Minnesota and one that is to be determined in Montreal, so we'll be sure to let you know about that. And one of his previous works, The Man That Crossed the Sahara, is available on Vimeo, but if you're in Canada, you won't be able to get your hands on that without messaging him privately. So he's given us an exclusive Fire in the Hole offer to all of our listeners if you want to message him privately on Vimeo, and I'll post the details in the description, then he'll give you uh, access if you want to check that out. So this episode is for the cinephiles out there. If you're into movies, this one's for you. Buckle up and fire in the hole. I I don't know how to think about whether a film's going to be seen by a lot of people or not. Uh, At the risk of sounding arrogant, I make the film to meet my own standards. I mean, how could I know what the composition of the audience is going to be in Toronto or Dubuque, Iowa or Los Angeles or San Francisco. I mean, once you start thinking that way, you get involved in the traditional Hollywood trap, or at least I view it as a trap, of diluting the material uh, to meet your fantasy of the lowest common denominator. So you've been doing education for, I mean, you've been teaching in one, but you, you started out as a, as a filmmaker, as a film student? This Was film your first thing? Yeah, I actually, um, I only got into film in my late 20s. I actually, I wasted a lot of time at university. <laughs> uh, that never happened. Trying to find myself, and I was in a, I, I grew up in Ottawa, and I kind of was in a, Ottawa's a bit more conservative, it's a government town, so when you claim that you want to get into the creative arts, um, people kind of doubt you or they say oh you want to be Adam McGoyan or you want to be a Spielberg and I actually start off in mathematics and okay. I said what the hell am I doing and then I you tried in, math I tr- tried math yeah by because of peer pressure oh because of my friend Carlos who's an architect and he, he wanted to take math classes and then we I said and then I eventually went to, to political science and then I found film through a film studies a film theory class and I kind of Back then, this was in the early 90s, mid-90s in Ottawa. I mean, film became like a conduit. It film, you know, I mean, people, some people look at film and say, is film a window onto the world or a mirror? And for me, it became a window because I actually I would go down to the Blockbuster 
back when Blockbuster was around, and I would just go through the international section, and I would actually rent like all these amazing films, you know, national cinemas, and uh, in, in a way that uh, cinema allowed me to kind of discover something about the world, about culture, humanity, and also sense of humor. Realizing that you know, people in Japan do have a great sense of humor, and then Russian films as well. So, so you were into the like the art art films and the international stuff like from the get go. You saying? Yeah, I mean, I've, and now that's not usually how most people no, start out. And and now and now I, I don't consume a lot of art house cinema. Now when I go to the, the movies, I, I escape the sugary, I escape, sugary yeah. blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I is mean, that what happens to all of us eventually? Before before I got into film, I actually had like a, I think I had three thousand comics. I collected comics in the in the mid eighties. You know, so well, that's cool. So I actually still I should get them out of my basement and see much. Of, oh yeah, I got the John Byrne X Men. Oh, dude, like, that was... All, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got, I got... It was huge. Yeah. So na- now that we find ourselves in 2016, and I know that people like Spielberg have been saying that you know, the comic book is going to die. It's kind of like the Western. I'm really excited because it's actually now we finally have the digital tools to create naturalistic kind of movement. And so you know, I think it's an exciting time. You think so? Oh, yeah. You think it's going to burn itself out? No. And I, the reason why I don't think the comic book industry is going to burn itself out is that they, there's so much content there. 40, 50 years of amazing narratives, great stories and characters. It is gonna, it's gonna, they're going to start to kind of look through it, find these great storylines, find these great characters, and, and yeah, I, I think it's going to be here for a long time. Wow. So, but I, were you into documentary right away? No, I always respected documentary. I actually started making docs because when I first got to film school... At that time, I had to make a five-minute silent film on black-and-white film stock. And I just moved to Montreal from Japan, and I made this really horrible seppuku film, which is the act of disemboweling yourself. It was a horrible, horrible film, and it was so awful. And sitting at that screening, five minutes of your film being on the screen, five, and when it's bad, because, you know, Concordia is a very competitive creative artistic place and I just felt like the biggest loser really I, yeah like, why like, was it so horrible it was just horrible it was a horrible film like it was bad it was so bad that, that I ended up screening the negative <laughs> because I was so ashamed of of, <laughs> of of the film I wanted to look differently and you showed it in ne- in a negative form yeah and and at that point I said you know what fiction's not for me uh, I had traveled extensively before I got into filmmaking and so for my next film I end up going with 10 rolls of film I went to Haiti and I made a travel log and from there I won an award at Concordia where I got I got like a, the Fuji prize and I got like 2,000 feet of Fuji film and I ended up calling up the Fuji representative and I said merci beaucoup merci beaucoup I'm so happy I got this award and she said you are the first person to ever call and to say thank you not one student ever before has ever called in the history of Fuji donating film stock she's like I'm gonna give you another four thousand feet. Amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then I and then I had money for my next film and, and second year of film school. I went to Cambodia to shoot a film. So I realized that. I mean, I'm a. I, I love Hitchcock. I think he's a great influence. He's someone important to study. And one thing that has always remained with me is that Hitchcock has always said that in in fiction film the director is God. In documentary, God is the director. And that's what I love about documentary is that you're free. You're not confined to a studio. You're not confined to all these other kind of uh, events. You can go out there, and there's serendipity. Things happen, and so I like to travel. So you know. Well, I've always—I don't know—I've always had this 
I've said this to Richard before, is that I, I feel like the irony of documentary is that it's often a, a rejection of fiction because it's in the search of truth and organic things happening and and inc incidents in real life and human. But in a sense, you kind of have to beat it into a narrative and into a story. You know? Oh, I, I mean, uh, I've had this conversation about truth. And there's a film by... Um, it's called Cinema Verite, Defining the Moment, a National Film Board film that was directed by uh, Peter Wintonic. And there's a great scene where he's interviewing the great Boston-based filmmaker... Um, uh, uh, Frederick Wiseman. Uh. Frederick Wiseman is in his basement working on his steam back, and the director, Wintonic, asks him about truth, and he turns to him and goes, how can you even say that? He's like... Every aspect of documentary filmmaking is manipulation. You guys can take this interview here or whatever we're doing and you could take it down to three, four minutes and kind of take something I said at the beginning and then add another clip. And so that's what documentary filmmaking is. Hmm. I mean, I mean, you, and social you're, you're completely, yeah, you're completely deciding what you want to present and you then have to use the art form of editing to kind of, to create some kind of comprehensible story. I've had people got, who've got, been mad at me for first talking about narrative and documentary, but we, a documentary is still telling a story. Yeah, because that's the stereotype, right? Is it, uh, uh, that, that was when I was in fiction, a lot of the documentary guys kind of bought into this like um, <laughs> narrative, ironically, of like being more or sort of interested in the truth. And a fiction guy was kind of a bullshit artist and you were interested in make-believe Whereas they searched for the truth and the reality of the real life. And I'm like, well, you know, that's funny because as a fiction guy, I feel like, yes, I am going to get high uh, sort of um, like f fictional ideas, but I'm trying to simulate them in a realistic way. I'm trying to bring them down to a realistic sort of believable, at least to the point where people will suspend disbelief. Uh, you know, yeah, two space captains, but I'm trying to have them have a conversation where it's really about the relationship, mm -hmm. right? Whereas, yeah, you'll film the homeless guy and his life and where he's been, but then he might have told you all the stuff out of order and you might have decided to omit this kind of part that's a bit boring and you want that sizzling, that sizzle reel of the homeless dude and his journey through Canada or whatever. So, like... It, they're equally as fictional in some ways. They oh, just yeah. go I mean, about I, it different I, ways. I mean, I, I don't really make a, I don't really differentiate between fiction, experimental, and and uh, documentary. For me, it's kind of are they cinematic? Is it cinema? Does it kind of work as a piece? You know, and yeah. and and I, I consume a lot more. I'm not sure about you guys, but I, I consume a lot more fiction. I watch more fiction than documentary. However, documentary is what I love to make. Right. Because you know you can. You can answer a certain question that you want to know about the world or about human existence, the human condition, through documentary. But right. you can do the same thing with fiction as well. Absolutely. You know, there's some great films out there and some great filmmakers who tend to kind of fuse, to come up with hybrid forms of documentary and fiction, and they can do really some really interesting work. Yeah. Yeah, look at uh, like Breaking Bad, which was you know pure fiction, but at the same time had a very sort of... Uh, or actually a better example would be The Wire, uh, which had a very documentary style but in fact told a fictional story but they they gave you the boredom they gave you the the quiet moments they gave you like non-actors a lot of i think almost everybody on that show was non-actors uh except for key roles that were 
British guys for some reason <laughs> with Baltimore accents or whatever. I, mean, I think one of the most powerful films I've seen in the last like 15 years would have to be that uh, Paul Greengrass film called United 93. Really? Have you seen it yet? United Night. It's funny because I, 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 I was at Hot Docs and I decided to escape documentary to go see that film in a movie theater in Toronto. Okay. And it's about the actual flight United 93 that crashed uh, on 9-11. Okay, so it, near the Pentagon or? No, it's, it crashed in rural Pennsylvania, I believe. Okay. I forget exactly where it crashed. But Paul Greengrass, who uh, directs the uh, the uh, the Bourne, uh, Jason True. Bourne, yeah. you see his films, and he employs a documentary style and uh, handheld, and he uses this kind of documentary language. And in this film, what he did was he actually went back to every single family member uh, who had uh, who were relatives of the victims from the airplane. He got all of the permission to make the film, and he did the most kind of amazing job of minute by minute research and so then he constructed this linear film that's exactly like the length of 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 those two hours of that morning, the actual events culminating in the crash but he ended up casting real people that 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 weren't actors he ended up casting real individuals who were a part of the story and he and they're in the film and so you're, you're like what are you watching you know it's kind of i had no idea this it was so oh it's a brilliant film sophisticated i thought it was like a it's the only time in my experience because I think that why do we go see films? It's for an emotional reaction. Right? I mean, I went and saw Pete's Dragon the other day at my daughter's. Actually, I had a tear in my eye. You know what I'm saying? It's not such a bad thing. But when I finished watching United 93, everybody in the movie theater, everybody was in tears. Really? And every, and it's Toronto, so you had a diverse kind of audience. You know, there's people from the yeah, potentially. Asian community. And it just, but I, I, I'm like, everybody it was this cathartic because you all know the outcome of this act of terror. But it was such a strong film, and it kind of it. At some moments, you know, they shot it on an actual. I believe that was shot in England. They shot it on an actual um, airplane, uh, so it was very claustrophobic. Handheld shots. They kept the terrorist actors away from the other actors. So it just it, the way that the, it was such a creative approach to telling this important story. And man, I mean, like, what a dyna dynamic film. It was like a perfect marriage of the two mediums, is what you're saying. Yeah. Or I would also say, have you seen The Act of Killing by uh, Oppenheimer? I think I've seen part of it. I don't think I've seen the whole yeah, I, thing. I, had, I started watching Netflix, and I, you know, and I, and I must say that... Selection's getting better? No, it's not getting better, but I must know I'm talking <laughs> about scale. You know, when you see a film, it's not the same. You know, it's, I still like to get into a movie theater, and I find that... Like, For some films, the yeah. The way that the, a film will affect you. And so the, the Art of Killing essentially looks at... Um, the, the director went to Indonesia to interview uh, victims um, of extrajudicial killings in the in late 1970s, and nobody wanted to talk. He's being persecuted, and then he ended up meeting the executioners, and he ended oh, up right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he ended up finding uh, he, he the film was exactly produced by Werner Herzog as well as um, the other great Boston dot, dot filmmaker that I'm uh, Errol Morris. I'm always bad with the names. I'm horrible with names. But uh, and then they 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 have these real individuals who kill people, reenact their crimes, and so it, it it's like a film within a film. Like it's and it's another example of wow, you can do. Yeah, it's like when they do Shakespeare with like uh, death row inmates and shit like that. Mm. The there's apparently somebody that did really? that. Yeah, and it's weird because it's kind of like they're doing this because you know 
uh, it's kind of an examination of their own lives because they're they'll do Macbeth or some really bloody uh, fucking uh, piece, and they're totally get into it. They don't act up, whatever. They're just totally into it, and then they're realizing things about their own lives as they're doing Shakespeare. But they're all basically dead. They're gonna die. They're all, you know. Was was this an American film? Uh, I'd have to ask uh, Eric. Uh, Eric is the one that told me about it because he's mm-hmm. a Shakespeare head. Uh, I'll find out what the title of it is, oh, and I'll get back massive. to you about it. But that's kind of what you're talking about, this weird marriage of, like, real life, but then uh, there's an artifice to it, but it's kind of in between. And, yeah, when you watch enough of those, you definitely want some, you know, well, I mean, there's, some, there's some Batman versus Superman after. Well, there's different approaches <laughs> to documentary, right? I mean, some documentarians have a strict kind of code of not asking questions, like just observing, not intervening. And then you have other filmmakers, like Werner Herzog, who actually will direct will have his subjects reenact something that wasn't natural to them. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think that there's a kind of a golden rule. Definitely. I, I think it's, you know, you've got to kind of play and discover and kind of experiment. Yeah, I mean, I know, and this I thought would, you, you'd find interesting, Richard, is uh, um, I think one of your biggest projects, I might be wrong, what, is the Indian Space Opera? Yeah, it's a film I just finished that had a... Uh, had a wonderful theatrical run at the uh, Cinematheque Quebecois. Can you tell Richard about it? Because he doesn't yeah. know about it. And, uh, yeah, well, Richard, this is, uh, I made the mistake of saying, oh, I want to make a film in India. <laughs> and uh, the reasons for that is because, well, I do have my brother married into an Indian family, and so, my, so I do have a connection to India. i never, never been, but I kind of wanted to discover India. And so I was kind of perplexed at India because I was like, wow, it's the largest democracy on the planet. Uh, it is also uh, a country of so many divides. There's absolute wealth and yet absolute disparaging poverty. Yeah, right next uh, to each other. Yeah, next to each other. You see, you'll see. Like Verdun. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah like Verdun. Yeah. Like you know, you'll see a Mercedes dealership in it, right next to a slum, and and so I actually then I found out that India had a space program, so I wanted to actually go hmm. So how can I like make a film and look at India as a country and look at its space program, but then kind of question its need to kind of explore the universe and spend all that money when it should be spending money on Earth. It should be helping Indian people. And so I raised money for the project. I got a couple of research grants and then decided to make a feature. And uh, well, I could talk for hours about the nightmare of producing in Canada. No, man, do it. <laughs> no, it's, 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 I, mean, very, I mean, it's a really dark time now for documentary filmmakers and for producers as well. Uh, I was lucky enough to find a broadcaster, Super Channel, came on board. Uh, they gave me a very generous, um, a very, very generous uh, broadcast license. And if I wouldn't have got them on board, I would have lost all my Telephone Canada money. However, the way... In my previous film, when I produced a film at Charlotte Engel at Bravo called The Man Across the Sahara, well, as soon as you sign the contract, they give you a payment. And then when you deliver the final film, they give you your final payment. What's happening now is they don't give you your first payment until you deliver the film. Then eight months later, at the second broadcast window, you get the second payment. And then my final payment, my last $28,000, I'm only going to get in another 18 months from today. So you have all these staggered payments now. So I know, I know, I've had to take on all this kind of financial kind of uh, burden and risk. burden, and and you know, finance the film, which has been had a really crippling effect. And uh, and and so I feel for a lot of I have a lot of 
producer friends, a lot of filmmaking friends, and, I, and I, it's, it's getting increasingly difficult. And now in my case, what was hard is I made a film completely like it, there was no English. It was completely in a foreign language. Nobody wanted to touch it. I only managed to get Super Channel. God bless their souls. They're great, great, great people to work with. But it was a difficult film because I, I actually had, when I started the film, I, my first daughter was about two years old. And then I started teaching. I was teaching at Concordia. And so I could only go away for two, three weeks at a time. I had these staggered shoots. To go get like more footage. Good. More footage. And, and eventually at the very end, I did my last trip. I, I realized that I had too many men. I mean, like a lot of things, a lot of dead ends are difficult working in India. There's a lot of, you have a lot of dead ends. I and, can't and, imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, it, I mean it's, it's not, not like working in Pakistan in terms of crime, but in terms of the whole notion, I mean, like, if you work with CBC, well, you're not allowed to pay any of your documentary subjects because the, those are the rules of kind of journalism. In India, good luck. Good luck not trying to... You yeah. arrive as a Westerner with expensive cameras. Do you have an idea? Like, for this one... Strawberry blonde hair. Strawberry blonde hair, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm a bindi. But essentially, I needed some more female stories. So the last trip, uh, I went to Delhi and then... Uh, Just to be clear, um, what you were setting out to do was kind of contrast the space program with like the squalor of or, or the yeah it was essentially it was a series of chapters a kaleidoscopic version of india that you so there's a multiple characters and you kind of you go through their daily lives and then you move on to the next chapter or so and so but each each chapter they kind of i would ask people what they think of the space program and they would somehow refer to it the problem that i had though a lot of places i went to people really had no education so I'd come back with these interviews and nothing made sense like they had no clue oh no no no, no clue I mean they weren't even answering the question so I mean so there was the whole issue of working with really good translators but it was very difficult but so so my just to return to my last my last trip I went to Arissa I needed a monsoon story well you know what the monsoon never came they were having these frog. They're marrying these frogs, having these religious ceremonies for all these frogs everywhere I went. But they were the, marrying frogs. Yeah, they marry frogs. Yeah, they okay, do. You, you can't just skip over this stuff. Yeah, so they're marrying frogs. And the, Why are they marrying frogs? They they have these ceremonies where they actually dress up these two frogs and have this, and and they think that it's it's going to kind of bring rain that the gods will will send rain. Okay. And never never happened. But I went to Arissa specifically because it was an area where there's been an epidemic of farmer suicides. Farmers can't, you know, their crops are worth nothing. They have to take on microcredit programs, and they can't ever pay them back, and they, they take their lives. So I went from village to village to village to village trying to find a mother who had recently lost a husband. We finally came across a really interesting character in this really unique home in this village. We did a 20-minute interview. As soon as we are done our interview, our, the house was surrounded. The mother wanted eight to $9,000 Canadian to pay for... because. One of the issues too, a lot of farmers commit suicide because they have daughters. And daughters mean they have to pay a dowry right. for marriage. So right. if you're if you have girls, you're you're destined you're to have a life of uh, to, to, to have a, a life of poverty because you're you're on my thing. So, so they wouldn't let us leave. I mean we I had to empty my pockets, you know. Wait, so okay, wait. So when you're saying you got surrounded, they, it wasn't like literally like the peeps showed up. And we're like, you're not leaving until... They, they held They you blocked up. the doors, and we could not get out the doors, and we had to empty our pockets. How did they come up with this number? Well, don't ask me. Because that's, that's a really high number. Like, I figured in a place like that, they'd be like, you will give us $100. No. And to give you an idea, so yeah, so eventually how it ended, we actually... We gave them around 70, 80 bucks. That's all we had on us. And then I said I was going to go to the ATM. 
I was going to come back. Well, we never came back because we felt very, well, you know, this is well, it's crazy. We asked, can they we do this interview? Hostage. Hell yeah, hell is hostage. Well, the same thing happened on, an, on another shoot. I went to film in this area of India, which uh, it's called, um, it's next to Bihar province. It's in, uh, oh my God, I'm losing my, my Indian geography is spotty. Yeah, uh, uh, it's in Danbad, which means city of wealth. But essentially, it's an area which is the coal, the coal mining capital of India. And so you have these, you have these actual like coal fields, but there's an underground fire that's been burning. Kind of like I think there's there's an area in Pennsylvania, Centralia, Pennsylvania. They shot a, a horror movie there. Same thing. There's an underground coal fire that's burning, and so there's these cracks that open up everywhere. People have fallen into these cracks, and like you're incinerated within like three four seconds. Wow. So we went to this area because it is just the most surreal, futuristic, kind of alien landscape, and we follow this little boy for three days, Rabbi, who wasn't going to school. He's working in the coal yards. We followed we followed him, you know. And then we decided to have a goodbye party for these characters, and we actually brought a couple chickens, and I made the mistake of bringing some local rum. And then, same thing. They wouldn't let us leave. Once uh, again, they're like... And they tried to sexually uh, molest one of my interns, uh, an intern that I had from Germany, and we had to physically leave this village. Wow. And when we finally gave them a payment of $70, they were ex- actually, they had told us, well, we were expecting $80,000. 80,000? Yeah, so I mean, so you go into these rural communities and they, they think that... It's you have $80,000 in your yeah. pocket? Yeah. I've seen... Uh, it's like a leprechaun kind of thing. They thought they caught a leprechaun. I wish I had $80,000. I don't yeah. have 80000 I, I would think like, that ah. too. <laughs> Seeing uh, Corbett coming over the hill. But, uh, <laughs> that wasn't what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean... Gotcha! <laughs> I saw... I, saw uh, I, I remember you showed me a, a little bit of the raw footage of that place and he's not exaggerating. It really looks like... Surreal some some alien planet with those like hot burning um like holes you were telling me some people that's how they commit suicide right no well in this area we actually uh, the way that it would work is i'm here and i don't speak hindi or another languages there's there's a bunch there's, right? there's many many languages in in india and so i would have to hire like a a, a line producer to research to go meet these people and then we would then agree on her research and the photographs and some pre-interviews and we would arrive and spend some time in these locations. Uh, But we originally went through this crime reporter who was there and he warned us, he goes, because there's a lot of of criminal activity in this area and when they have to dispose of bodies, they'll just throw them directly into these fire pits. Right. And when I was there, a week before I was there, there there's an elderly man man who walked down to... uh, he had to use the bathroom, so he went down where there's no bathroom, but he was, was doing his thing. And the ground opened up underneath him, and he was like, whoosh, swallowed whole. Whoa. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's it, the smell, it's unbelievable of this. You know, you, you're like, how could anybody live in this area? And, th- and that's kind of, that's where my guilt comes as a filmmaker, because, you know, I can go there and I can leave. Mm. They can't. That's their everyday, all day. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I had this conversation with Philip Valadeau once, uh, the great Quebec uh, filmmaker, is that he, that he said, you know, in fiction, it's fairly easy because your characters are actors. They don't really exist. They're born on paper. And when you go home at night, they're digital files. They're, they're, they're in the editing software. But in documentary, well, you're working with real people. That's deep, yeah. And, 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 and you have a kind of relationship with them later on. You know? 
Yeah, you make not uh, in my case because you know I mean like you know I mean. Like, but you like, make like a physically abused, molested character, and then like it's a really harrowing film. But then you, at the end of the day, that's an actor with makeup on. But there's also what happens after. For example, in this village where we went to in uh, in uh, Danbad, we're following this little boy. Well, he had a little sister who was maybe like seven, and for months and months and months after we had left, she kept calling my line producer in India. And said, "Please, my father's raping me. Can you please come get me out of here?" Say, you know, so to give you an idea, I mean, like, you know, you, you you get into these situations, and then you you have daughters, man. Like, well, I do have daughters. You're, part you're, part you're of the reason why I made this film too is to understand what you know. There must have. I, I find life complicated for me, and like, and I'm like, I'm in the one percent. But then you see how these other people how they survive, and and you're like, like, oh my god, you know, like Jeez. what like what is the what is the real world like? What's going on here? This is mm-hmm. not the real world. This we're in, we're in a minority right now. Yeah, yeah. But the right. real global struggle you know we got air conditioning in here it's really nice <laughs> right now in delhi it's probably 49 degrees i don't know how people are in surviving. the shade in the shade yeah in the shade so it kind of puts your life into perspective does that compare to your uh, your experience in india well i didn't get taken hostage but yeah i, w- I was taken aback by one how how many uh how there was like the haves and have-nots, but they were like kind of right next to each other. You'd walk down the street and slum, mansion, pile of dead dogs, another slum, you know, kind of thing. That was one thing. And the other thing was that people were really, I found them very joyful. Particularly the people who had nothing, who were living literally in a hole in the ground, were all smiles and seemed very joyous. Or at least, yeah, at least they, yeah. yeah, they appreciate the living, I guess, to a certain point. It just seems like their happiness is less tied to, you know, material wealth. Right, that makes sense. It would seem. And you went to yeah. Delhi? Where'd you go? Mumbai? I was in Mumbai. Mumbai, yeah. And Mumbai is a whole different, yeah. just, you know, it's, I, I, I compare Mumbai to, like, Shanghai and Delhi to Beijing because, it's like, Mumbai is so dense. And, Ridiculous. And... That's the fascinating thing about Mumbai is that, you know, I, and I find a lot of other travels, I met a lot of other people I tend to love Mumbai, like Maximum City, but I found Mumbai to be the most depressing of places just because of that disparity between right. wealth and poverty. And that's the interesting thing is Mumbai, even in the slums, you go to Dharavi, which is maybe used to be the largest slum, and I think it's the third largest in Asia now, but the real estate there is worth more than Hong Kong. Wow. Like, the price per square foot, it's unbelievable. How is that possible? Like, well, well okay, because- give, give an idea. So, my ex-producer finished film school at, um, at the uh, Santiat Ray Film Institute. There's two film schools in, in India, one in Pune and the other in uh, Kolkata. Did you just swear at me? <laughs> it no. sounded like you swear at me. Kolkata. <laughs> Kolkata. Calcutta. And so... Dirty Kolkata. So what happens is, I mean, kind of like America, people want to kind of... They finish film school and they want to go to the big kind of... The centers of the industry, which was, say, Hollywood. Yeah. Well, in India, they all try and go to Bollywood. Go to Mumbai. Well, when she... And she's from a... I mean, because who gets to study film in India? You know, you've got to be fairly affluent to, to be able to do that in the first place, but... Right. Yeah, it's a bit she of a arrived in Mumbai. This had to be maybe eight, nine years ago. And when she arrived, the only place she, she could somewhat afford was a 10-foot by 10-foot shack in Dharavi in Mumbai. 
So you got 100 square feet. You know, I mean, how many square feet do you have here? I'm not sure, but 100 like square a feet. Bathroom. Yeah, it's 100 like square, the size of a kitchen. Yeah, size of a 100 square feet. That's like mud, dung, polished floors, one light, no running water, no toilet. It was 700 US a month. Oof. What? So fuck? you realize that you don't, like, that the slums are expensive. Like, there, there's, there's no land. I mean, a lot of the, the very impoverished Indians who are working as taxi drivers, they live like two, three hours outside the city. But even within the slums, I mean, they're, they're, they're you know, so, so it's just kind of, you're like, how is this possible? But, and I, I mean, when, I'm not, when's the last time you were there? Oh, this was a while ago. It's like 15 years ago. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I made several trips to Mumbai over the course of five years. And the last time I was back in 2012, I could not believe of how many towers it's becoming a vertical city. The wealthy are building these towers. That makes sense. And and it's the only way to sit up every science fiction book you ever yeah. read, right? But, <laughs> I, but so so there's a lot of money now that's coming back from Dubai, and I mean it's just there's so much development. Hmm. There's so much money. I mean, you look at Montreal, a couple of towers going up, but nothing like what's going on in Asia right now. Yeah, it's you know, so it's unbelievable how the world is really developing at such a fast rate. And here in Montreal, we can't even build a can't even build a subway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole. We're a new bridge, but the disparity is not bad enough here. That's thing. I think that's the thing. Once the disparity gets really bad, it hits uh, Sao Paulo, you know, levels, hmm. Rio levels. Well, then that's what I'm worried about because you know, there's then you're going to middle class is shrinking. But I mean, the development is so that they can move people into these towers, and out of the, out of the gutter, right? So they can like oh, hover, no, 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 hover so above. It's not for people who live in the gutter. The people who. Well, that's what I'm saying. For ten lakh crore or whatever, I'm not sure. It's what. so these people don't have to see the yeah. the, the the garbage gated, anymore. Gated communities. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, I've, I was reading about the U.S. that they started building these types of developments, where they literally do not have to come into contact with any the, the little people. Hmm. They can just, they just like fly in. Yeah, like every <laughs> very soon, it's like zeppelins or whatever are going to start. <laughs> but yeah, but that's but that's what that's up. happening. Last time I was in Mumbai, you realize, you're, wow, like that the very wealthy now have helicopter services. No one drives anymore course they don't want to i was in delhi i was in delhi i had to go six kilometers three and a half hours three and a half hours to go six kilometers kilometers. it's just i mean it's to a point where you're like is that part of the economy maybe (laughs) i I just i don't know how how they do it i mean it's got to a point where it's you know it's i mean i don't know how it can you could drop a you could drop like you could carpet bomb india and not make a dent in the population somehow there'd still be just more more of the it's just like it, it's the most densely populated place in the world right i think bangladesh is the most densely populated followed by the netherlands but india is still quite large but they've they're at i think close to 1.2 billion they're they're, they're i think they're passing china very madness you not know, very i don't soon. even know how do they count it must be by satellite at this point like i don't know i don't know, I don't know how else you could count but there's a there's a very strong aroma as soon as they open the plane door that's what i've heard yeah just because of how densely populated the humanity is. hits you yeah well yeah i mean you yeah you well you arrive this thing is too you arrive in like the airport in mumbai is surrounded by slums right okay and so it's almost like somebody smearing your face with shit the second well i mean i mean <laughs> the fact of the matter is there's so many people in mumbai i mean some estimates say 24 million i don't believe it it's it's got it be feels like it's over 30 million it feels much more congested than tokyo yeah but you're right so many people don't have adequate they have nothing toilet facilities so supposedly 30 percent of mumbai's air is fecal matter that makes sense yeah. yeah i mean here in the first world on a bus on a hot muggy day with the wrong set of people 10 people on the back of a bus 
it gets it gets pretty un like I've gotten off the bus, <laughs> right? I can only imagine what thirty million people with no access to to plumbing, <laughs> yeah, right? It's something. Like, it's literally a toilet. You get used to it, but that that first waft as they <laughs> open the doors <laughs> knocks you on your off your feet. It's like, oof, but yeah, sometimes it's nice I'm, to have that kind of. Uh, I mean, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, I wish I was sitting on a the musk on a terrace with that. Are you in smell. love with that place? Like, do you, do you, do you have a do you have a special? Well, place? I'm actually. I just decided to start a new film in India. Um, and so I'm not sure whether I'm actually. It might I be haven't a learned, thing. Haven't learned my lesson. I think the part of the challenges, though, is that just kind of working with the language. And but I'm I'm working on a new film, which uh, came to me because I was when I was. The last film didn't really have... I mean, it was a study of poverty and people who who are critical of the government's kind of plan to send a man to the moon when money should be spent on Earth. On toilets? When I, was in, when I was in Delhi, though, over the course of five days, there were seven couples that were murdered by their own families for marrying out of love or eloping and kind of... Oh, like fuck you with the case system? Yeah, and and... And so I essentially, I'm, I'm like, you know, to me, the most kind of beautiful thing about being alive is when you actually fall in love with somebody. When you, you know, fall, falling out of love is not good either. No, it's mm-hmm. not good. But, but when you fall in love, it's such a powerful thing. And, and so I want to make a film which kind of looks at the marriage industry in India, such as they have these mass marriages where they marry off like one-year-old, like one-year-old ch- little girls. They're obsessed with that marriage yeah. No, but it is because there's, you know, there's, you know, it's intercaste marriage. But so I've met a lot of people there who actually fell in love, and some of the stories they told me about death threats, about having to hide. There's, there's, there's a group in Delhi called the Love Commandos, and these are a group of lawyers that what they do is they they try and help and protect young lovers from being murdered. So they have a one eight hundred phone Jesus line Christ. you call up saying you know I, I just you know I'm I, I, I'm in love and I'm gonna I, get I, murdered I know I mean like, I don't want to marry the, the person my parents want me to marry I, I fell in love with this guy and now we're in danger and so they'll come and love commands will come get you and kind of will, will put you in hiding uh, so there's there's a lot of interesting stories there you know there's there's a lot of interesting well, I'm, stories I'm already intrigued like I'm already yeah. intrigued oh yeah I was just gonna see how it's gonna go together but I mean if, you know the idea would maybe to follow like a a follow like this one kind of mass ceremony where all these little kids are kind of like dressed up and no they're like one year old two years old and the parents marry them off to like a 14 year old and then when they hit 12 they'll then marry that man who's in his mid-20s and they become 12 year olds yeah well, they're marrying when they're when they're one year old they're, they get they get married when they're one year old but they actually don't move yeah, in I with their, that, their husbands till one eight or twelve the, the 12 is where they deem it to be sufficiently yeah yeah, and Ouch. so you know, and so right away you, it's dark. you have little girls who are pregnant at age twelve, thirteen. They're they're, they're they're mistreated by 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 a lot of families. Sometimes they're really mistreated. They're yeah, either abused. About that stuff. Uh, so I've, I'm planning a trip where I have to go meet with a number of NGOs and kind of start looking, but I got to find characters. You know, one of one group of characters is going to be a, probably a, a couple that have been murdered. Is that by, by, with a, and then parallel with a couple that that has escaped and is, is that the documentary kind of approach, at least for you? Well, where like you, if you have an idea or you see a subject, then it's gonna depend on on finding quote unquote characters. Is that is that a oh, sort yeah. of a key no, I mean, key piece I mean, of the puzzle? 
I think that if you're making a documentary, it's kind of like when you're making a fiction, right? You've, you've got to cast the right actor who has the right set of skills and character traits and the physical appearance and the emotional delivery of lines. Well, same thing goes for casting someone. You, know, you can cast someone who's got a great story, but if they don't work on camera, they don't work. They're kind of one note or... Yeah, so, 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 you do, I mean, so you do have to kind of almost do like a casting when you're finding characters. I, I know very little about documentary because I, you know, I've never really attempted it, but um, it's got to be an interesting process. Like, so how do you, how do you know? Is it it's just instinct instinct that tells you like when you, you're you're auditioning someone and you're like, yeah, okay, this person's going to help me tell that story? Yeah, you, 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 you feel it. You, you arrive and you feel it and you, is this right? Is this, you know, you got to trust your gut. Okay. You know, and then you say, okay, how am I going to, I read, I can do a number of interviews, but how, then what am I going to show? Because I don't necessarily want to do a lot of talking heads. My last film had a lot more talking heads than originally I had planned. And through editing with Daniel Dietzel, who was my editor, we kind of were forced to take a more conventional approach. Because what I had set out to do didn't quite work in post-production. So, uh, yeah, so you also got to find about what are you actually going to, what's going to be shown, what's going to happen, you know, you know. It's hard, you know, and you have a, you hit a lot of dead ends. Kind of like when you're editing a film, you know, you can edit for two, three days and it doesn't work. You've had to hit that dead end. Well, filming, a lot is on the cutting room floor. So I, I, I don't shoot digital like forever, forever, and forever, forever. Yeah. I still think of like memory as like film stock. So I, I shoot less because I, because I know that why am I going to spend three yeah, to four, why am I going to spend block. three to 400 hours of shooting stuff? I'm not even, and I, I'm, make, I'm making a two hour film. I'm the same so way. you're you're wasted your time. You wasted how many hours, and it's expensive traveling, especially India. It's an expensive place to work in. It is expensive. Is it? It's not cheap. No. It's not cheap. So you have to know what you're doing. You have to be precise. Frugal. On the subject of the uh, Indian uh, marriage racket, uh, have you seen the? Was it called Meet the Patels? Um, no, I ha- no, I ha- no, I ha- no, I haven't seen that yet. It's really funny. Huh? Yeah, it's the funnier side of that. There's <laughs> a lot less death involved, but it, like they go through the whole, like how it works. Like the. I, like, I think you're right. I think that we need more funny documentaries. Documentaries always tend to be like heavy. That's why I avoid them. And depressing a lot of times. issues. And I want the I want the information that's there, but I'm like. Yeah, sometimes you don't want, and and that's a problem too. Is now. Right. Now, I mean, a lot of broadcasters they don't want to put anything on that's political or anything that is actually about yeah, human rights it's all day social all. justice that you know right. it's all day you can't curl up and watch that with some popcorn yeah yeah it, yeah plus you're getting that shit all day on social media right, right. all day yeah getting the drama all day so by the time you want to sit down no wonder people are just want to watch we turn like, a blind eye and we want to see something else right no. a buddy of mine actually made a, a documentary on the subject of uh, indian people oh, really? he's uh, he went to concordia his name is uh, mahmoud kabur and uh, he now lives in the UAE, and he. Uh, I know, man. Do you? Did he? He, he actually made uh, being Osama. Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know him quite well. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, not super well, but I, but I've, I've, he actually, I, I met him when that film came out, and I had him in my class when I was at teaching at Concordia, and uh, yeah, I just follow him on Facebook. He's he nice. made a, he made a movie about his grandmother that won a number yeah. of awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's living in Berlin now, right? Is he? Is he in Berlin? I'm not sure where he's at. I thought he was still living in the UAE. I don't know. Where every I, where every I, single picture that he's been posting. Has so he's been, a student of yours? No, he wasn't a student. He went to Concordia maybe a couple years before I was there, and you met him through the documentary. Like no, I met him or? through. I heard about him in his film. Uh, 
after 9-11 and I had a uh, my professor at the time because I was a I was a grad student and I was teaching one documentary section but at the time Marielle, Marielle Nitalaska knew him and suggested that he come to class and he came to class and I've spoken to him a couple times since but good yeah. guy Made okay. uh, the, one of those grandmother, which is great, uh, Teta Alfmara, yeah. like uh, grandma a thousand times. And he he won a, like a, he won a big cash award for yeah. that, and uh, De Niro, De Niro yeah. was on hand and gave it to him. You know, ah, wow, yeah, yeah, because yeah, because yeah, sure. I think the Tribeca had opened a, a documentary section, or oh, or they they did a, they they Some launched sort of a film festival in mm-hmm. in in that part of the world. So. Well, shout out to Mahmoud, but uh, and he he also the most recent one that he made was. Um, Champ of the camp, yeah, uh, in Dubai, going over the, yeah. the 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 slums where they where they kind of the truck in all the migrant work, workers uh-huh. from India and take away their passports and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But they do these like uh, singing competitions, a karaoke kind of uh, situation. And he was, I mean, obviously, oh, it's like their only their only joy, their only joy, yeah. their only entertainment is these exactly. like uh, karaoke competitions. Yeah, and they're going like full Bollywood, at, in, like having all these competitions and stuff. Look, I haven't seen the film yet. I haven't seen the, either. Yeah, I, I need, I need to see his films. That's that's the problem. Is the problem is now, how do you see these films? You can't. That's you know. I mean, and and. White Noir is closed. All the, I mean, I just the Videotron near my house and Myland just closed. I actually went two weeks ago. Yeah, that, that's. I, I got ten movies for ten DVDs for ten bucks. Yeah, but now you have all these great films and they're not archived digitally. And you some great films that you can't find. You have to either contact the filmmaker and order. But it's that's a challenge too. Is actually be able to see the work. Right. Yeah, you have to wait till maybe Criterion. Like uh, decides that they they're they're hot for that. Yeah, but even some of these great films, like they do have distributors, but it's three hundred dollars for a DVD. Right. Right. That's the price for a DVD. Right. That that's not an educational kind <laughs> of. Uh, no one gives uh, a the shit educational about cost. It's actually that's you know. That's so, the, the the like shelf price. Yeah. So I mean, who, who can afford? I mean, who can afford to see the film? All right. Let's take yeah. a break. It's like the price of an EpiPen. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how much they cost? Oh, they've 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 gone up quite a bit. Why? What's that? What's the deal with that? Uh, it just came out. I think this week that they price gouged it like like crazy. The yeah. EpiPen, like the Martin Screlly uh, thing. Yeah, in two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. It was hundred dollars for two pens. Now it's seven hundred. Yeah. This is okay. Well, we're not talking about an obscure situation here. Oh, this is a this essential life saving device for a lot of people. These are things they have to have in schools. Yeah, well, one of their competitors apparently went out of business, um, and had to like do a oh, recall. Yeah. Well, so like, like they're the only game in town. So that Martin Screlly guy, he really is a piece. You of know, shit. you get much lower than that. <laughs> hey, he, was, yeah, he has yeah, a face he, that you really. Love he would to be hate. on the cover of uh, Punchable Face magazine, definitely. <laughs> oh yeah, just that. Yeah, but yeah. he does, has that like weird, yeah, that cocky look. But he's not face. really cocky. It's kind of a weird. Um, insecurity that's settled into cocky but uh-huh. behind it is like tre- tremendous amount of weakness but he found this sort of attitude that works for him and he sort of kind of perpetuates I don't, really, it. I don't think it works for him but did you see that video he was he was being interviewed by a panel of congressmen yeah I saw that and every time I ask him a question on the grounds of uh, the With my attorneys on my yeah 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 I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I
He's like, Shirelli, oh, so you can't answer questions. You can. He's like, so you're able to answer questions, aren't you? It's just in nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in pain. You were saying about Trump? Well, I mean, working and teaching film, like I, I teach at Emerson College in Boston, um, yet I come back to see my children in, in Montreal. So I was actually kind of happy to move to the States at the very beginning because it was during the Charter of Values. Oh, and yeah. I felt that I really wanted to escape. The madness. Just, just, no, just, yeah, it's the madness of this kind of thinking that, you know, being fearful of, 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 of people's religions. And now Trump's could come to power. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. But Trump actually, you know, he was elevated by the media at the beginning because all those little kind of quips and those comments, and now it's turned against him. But I, I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I got $20. Uh, yeah, I put a bet on it yesterday. Did you? I got 20 bucks going with Kurt. Uh, I'm predicting that he's going to drop out. Yeah. And uh, Kurt, uh, everyone's like, no, no, no way. I'm like, no, I think he's going to drop out this. That's what Michael Moore said. Did you read that article? Yes, yes. Yeah. Although my, I'm a little bit iffy about Michael Moore, too, because yeah, he, sure. he sort of started out as a voice of reason and then kind of became a weirdo hmm. uh, in later stages of his career. But the, the theory seems plausible. Yeah. Which I, was that I, he just did the whole thing as a publicity stunt, I, and now it's gone way too far, and he's sabotaging his own campaign in order because he doesn't really actually want the job. Yeah, he he couldn't he couldn't <laughs> now nah, he'd be hostage for four years minimum. Yeah. Right? I think I think he does want the job. I think that's a part of his kind of. He seems like a megalomaniac, and he's but he's not a worker. That's I don't the think thing. he wants to work. It's a lot of work. He's not a worker. He's he's a, he sells himself as a hardworking guy, but he is notorious for not wanting to do the work. I know, but I I think that his reason is not to serve the country. His reason is based in his ego, and right. it's about power. He already is rich and powerful, but this is a different type of power. So this would be just like leveling up for him, maybe. There, there, I remember reading something that he he had said that he might want to actually run the Apprentice from the White House when he's president, <laughs> which and it was a credible source too. So it was like really weird. I was like, Ruh. I mean, don't forget that Trump also came out and was questioning Obama's nationality, oh, yeah, the yeah. birther, based on his ethnicity and his name. And at a White House White House, I think press dinner. Donald Trump was there. And this happened, I think, on a Friday before they assassinated bin Laden. Oh, right. Yeah, the correspondence dinner. Correspondence dinner. Yeah. And Trump was in the audience, and Obama said, well, you know, when you're a president, it's not like being in Celebrity Big Brother or, or Apprentice. <laughs> he, 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 like, he mocked Trump in that, in that room. Without even mentioning his name. Without mentioning his name, which is clever. So... I think Trump also wants to kind of he's yeah, I think he, yeah, he wants it. Like Maybe. it's just a but he yeah. it, it's it, but it's it's coming it's just he just it's one gaffe after another gaffe and another gaffe it just doesn't end. I mean, clearly he said he'll be presidential when he's a president. That's clearly impossible. No. Even within the Republican <laughs> party people are worried about his hand next to the nuclear trigger. 
I mean, I've never absolutely. seen this with Republicans before. Can you, can you imagine I've somebody in the Democrats? Them. I've I mean, never seen, like, look, listen, remember Ross Perot? Do you remember yeah, Ross yeah, Perot? Sure. Yeah. So Ross Perot, uh, they, ne- they didn't jump ship for a guy like uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, they didn't even flinch for guys like Cruz at the beginning okay. and Rubio and all these other quacks. And uh, what's the other guy's name? The uh, the surgeon. Um, ben uh, Ben Carson. Carson, yeah. Yeah, who yeah. was easily, easily twice the nutbag that, that tr- Trump is legit, legitimately. Right. A complete nutcase. Didn't flinch. And Trump did something that is making them jump ship. En masse. Like, not a single... Republican of note showed themselves at the at the convention. Not one no. former president is behind Trump. Not a single one. The only person behind Trump is uh, Kim Jong Il and, is he behind and Vladimir Trump? Putin. Yeah, exactly. Is King Jong Il behind well, Trump? The, is that what they're saying? Reputation. I'm not sure. But that's, <laughs> that's because that's because me. they just launched their Netflix. Did you see this? The North Korean Netflix. No, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so Kim Jong-il insisted on uh, the creation of a their own Netflix, essentially. And it, it's, com- it's comprised of the five channels, the five national channels of the North Korean Republic. Uh, problem being, of course, that no one has the internet in North <laughs> Korea. So it's not 100% clear who this is being made for. But uh, there it is. There's even a demo of it on YouTube. You can see what it looks like. It's, it's hilarious. Really? It's, yeah, it's five like, channels of propaganda. Well, but his, his father was a filmmaker, too. A filmmaker, his father uh, Kim Jong Il was a Kim Jong Il, yeah, and if, and uh, there's a film that's coming out. It's the, the trailer is on is actually on the uh, Apple trailer website. But essentially, what he did is he wanted to become. He actually wrote a book like on filmmaking, like talking about his theory of filmmaking. But what he did is he actually kidnapped of one of the top South Korean filmmakers and one of the top South Korean actresses. In either the late seventies or early eighties, kept them for several years, forced them to make some kind of North Korean Godzilla film. Okay. And they managed to escape. But yeah, he he had kidnapped like a That's star. a documentary right there. Well, there's there's a documentary coming out. It's it's it's, it's, it's actually about, okay. It's about yeah, the, it's about the whole now. thing happening. Okay. Because the, 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 the director has, the director has died, but the actress is still alive. So she's the kind of the the main interview subject. What a nutbag! Wow. Do you know she, what that one's called? No, I'd have to pull up my phone, but I, I saw the trailer about a month ago. I always felt that would be an amazing film because it's such a crazy story. Well, there's probably a, a whole bunch of documentary filmmakers who are, who've tried and are trying to pierce the veil and get into North Korea and, and try to tell those well, stories. There's, yeah, there's, been a, well, there's a number who have actually have gotten in. And they've been able to tell like stories that are condemning that I, don't, I don't know what stories they're telling but i think you can't really picture what it must be like to i mean if you had a hard time dealing with india i can't imagine what the hoops you have to jump through to get uh, the right to shoot over there to be able to actually get a visa to just get into the country i does canada even have diplomatic relations with north korea do they even have a consulate here i, I doubt it not to my knowledge there's such a secretive state yeah no, but like, there's nothing there. It's like a paper mache. And they state. actually made a threat to, oh yeah, I to nuke that. to nuke yeah. uh, Washington D.C. like this week. This week, yeah, I, I, mean, I remember them threatening Mont- um, not Montreal, but they, they they threatened Canada at some point. They threatened to nuke uh, Canada at some point. Well, but because yeah, because the U.S. and South Korea are having military drills, and they're they're getting they're getting antsy. 
What a bizarro. But yeah, I mean, like there's government. like there's no other any other hermit kingdom on Earth like that. There isn't, is there? Yeah. Not even some like Banana Republic or weirdo um, uh, Arab no. uh, micro country. So have you? You've been to India, obviously. You've been to wh- where else have you been? Uh, you've been to the northern uh, northern uh, Europe at all? Have you seen any of that? N- no, I mean, I actually, I've, I've lived in Japan, in the Netherlands, Japan, in the states. For how long? I was in Japan for about a year. I was there on the Japan uh, is the called the Jet Program, Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, and it was actually a great. It's like a cultural. Uh, experience where you work as a teaching aide, and uh, I got to really ex- travel through Asia. You know, I got to spend time in China, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Cambodia. Um, and I did go back. I, I worked on a couple other films. I went back to Japan, and it's funny you mentioned Japan. Is like, you know, what? if anybody out there has a good idea for a Japanese documentary, come see me. I really want to kind of raise money. I want to go back to Japan. It's, it's, I've always wanted to see Japan. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't know how to describe it. I, you can't. You've got to kind of just, you arrive and, and you feel like you're in, on another planet. It just, it is so different, so advanced culturally. But backwards in other ways. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, uh, Japan has some negative things about it too. No, but I mean, it's like, an island nation. So when you have, when you're an island nation, you tend to see yourself as the center of the world. I think Japan is known as the Middle Kingdom, but it actually there are problems. There are some real right-wing elements within Japan. Like when I was actually living there, uh, the actual there was an interview on TV with the mayor of Nagasaki, which is the second atomic target, and a journalist had asked him whether or not whether or not the actual emperor of Japan was to blame for what happened in Japan and, and for World War II and Japan's massacre. And uh, he said, "Yes, I think that the uh, the the, uh, the emperor sh- is to blame." Next day, there was an assassination attempt on him. Wow. So you know, when I when I was living in Kitakyushu, I remember very well. One day, I was walking down the street, and suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this black painted school bus with this 18th century music playing it, and the slogans were "Japan for Japanese, foreigners, gaijin, get out." They're, 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 I mean, Japan is an amazing place, but there is still the sliver of, uh, like anywhere you find that anywhere. But yeah, but there, there, there is an ultra right wing, xenophobic, oh yeah, supremacist kind of uh, point of view. Yeah, it's very marginal, very small, but it's there. I guess, I guess that makes sense. I mean, uh, with America having kind of essentially settled there, in in a, in a bit of a permanent way, they, I don't know if they still have troops there, but yeah, they have, still have they have a. They must have a they base. They have troops. They have a base in Okinawa, a base in Sasebo. I remember visiting Sasebo. I remember never getting, got the dirtiest looks in my life. Really? Shopkeepers would just close the doors on me because they thought I was an American soldier. Oh, I see. Uh, and then there's another military base somewhere near Tokyo, I believe. But there's also, there's been a series of rapes. Uh, by soldiers? By soldiers. Rapes and murders of uh, Japanese civilians. And so there's pressure now. I think in, in Okinawa, there's major pressure to actually for the Japanese for the uh, US military to, to move but that's not going to happen any, anytime soon J- the US is there kind of like the same way they're in they're in North Korea with a loose cannon like North Korea sorry they're in South Korea and Japan they're, they're there they kind of have to, to stay the there yeah because Japan Japan doesn't have an army it's got a self-defense force but I, I heard they're trying to build up again that's what I heard. I don't know if that's there's any truth to that, but I heard they're starting to uh, 
to, to uh, arm again and slowly like they're starting to to uh, meddle with uh, military uh, airplanes have to and wait stuff and like see that. what happens uh, because they want to they want to I think they somebody told me this that's into this stuff said that they they have a somewhat of an interest in uh, kicking some dust up with the Chinese again you know because that that's apparently never a, a never ending thing there's just still animosity really? yeah, yeah that's and there's and there's animosity too between the Russians because there's also a series of islands in northern Japan that the Russians claim right to have ownership. So they're yeah they're they're still simmering. There's some some relics leftovers. of World War Two that is still it's a never ending human human folly. But uh, let to to make things a little bit more lighthearted. What was it like on a day to day living in in Japan? Like getting your uh, food and I I mean I I didn't feel like I had that big of a cultural difference when I was living there. I mean. Aside from not being able to kind of go unnoticed, right? Everywhere you go, you're like because Japan is such a homogenous society. Like there's 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 barely any immigration, and that's a part of the problem. Is I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the the average child per couple, like in Japan, I'm not sure what it is in Canada. What the you know whether it's one point seven in Japan is like zero point eight. So they have such a low birth rate, and there's no immigration. So the country is actually its 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 population right now is about around 127 million. They claim by 2050 it's going down to 77 million. Hence why they're investing in robots to take care of older people because they just they they're having a, a major population decline. And there are immigrants in Japan, but you're never really kind of you can't really like never really stay put down right? roots. Yeah. I I have friends who've stayed and have roots and have had kids there. You can do that? Is that possible? Yeah. I have a couple of friends who did have kids, and, uh, and they're there now. You know? I believe that they're begrudgingly kind of accepting that reality now and starting to open Well, I, I, I think the, the issue, like, I, the Japanese are, I mean, Japanese are super friendly. I mean, I have friends who've got picked up by, by people brought over for dinner. I mean, I, I've, I've, some of the greatest acts of kindness I've experienced when I was in Japan. Yet I've also experienced other things in Japan, too, but that, that could happen... Anywhere, right? anywhere, and everywhere has got their rednecks. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah definitely. Is. Right, we had this, we had this discussion. <laughs> oh, we have it in Canada, we have it in Quebec, we yeah, we have it everywhere. There's oh, yeah. your documentary idea right there: Japanese rednecks and where they live. <laughs> Let's find the world. So desne. <laughs> <laughs> have you picked up any Japanese? Do you, do you speak it a little bit? Watashi wa kobe des, Canada jin des. Hi. No, I mean, I actually, I knew I was only there for a year. I actually went to Japan because my brother told me he's like. Don't miss this opportunity whenever we get a chance to live in a foreign country and get to travel through Asia. And I did, and that's when I actually I managed to save up, and then I went back, I went to film school. So Japan was kind of a stepping stone for me to get some kind of to get some travel experience to see the world. And I and I, and I think that's travel. I mean, I tell my students, you don't even, like you I think, do it. Just get out there. I mean, you're, you know, you don't. I mean, I'm just from, a, I was from Ottawa. I remember the first time I traveled, I went by myself to like. I went to Central America for six months, you know, and, and I remember just being like shocked and afraid because, you know, coming from a very kind of isolated, uh, uh, from a very kind of affluent city, green grass, swimming pools, safety, middle class, and then arriving in El Salvador, you're like, what the hell? I mean, but that's, I mean, like what we're living here is not what the majority world is really Definitely like. Definitely we don't live in the yeah, real yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we live in kind of this kind of uh, utopian sector of the planet you know but we but compared to what the average person has to live in the world 
we're very lucky. Yeah, I, I discovered this when I uh, did some work with uh, McGill uh, at the um, research uh, with the research people that are fighting tuberculosis in the third world. <clears throat> and realizing that tuberculosis is still like alive and well in almost every part of the world except these two, three pockets, one of which we live in. Uh, just like malaria is a devastating fucking death-dealing disease that everyone worries about, but to us it's like a, it's, it's a thing you put in a movie as a, <laughs> as a gimmick, mm. you know? <clears throat> or you hear some one of those George Clooney types talk about like, oh yeah, that was tough when I went to do some work in Africa and blah, 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 blah in Haiti. I got malaria and the pills and blah, blah, blah. But it's not a reality. And the funny thing is you still have target, the Taliban have been targeting tuberculosis workers in Pakistan and killing them because they're going out to kind of to eradicate tuberculosis. Uh, the yeah, they're trying to kill them, yeah. And, and so you realize, I mean, like, you know, like, it's madness. What kind of planet do we live on? You just want to help kids and be disease-free, and you end up getting shot to death for it. Yeah. But it's weird, though, because at the same time, the caliphate uh, has a, a, an impressive vaccination program where they send out like these guys on motorcycles across their holdings to bring vaccines to make sure that the populace is like inoculated against major diseases. And really? They're so, sort of, obviously, they're doing it for economic reasons because that means tax, tax, tax money. Uh, but also because they want to, it perpetuates their sort of like you see, and the caliphate takes care of its people, and it's it's benevolent dictatorship. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, they they really take care of their people. Right is the is the message right? But uh, one of the doctors that I was talking to in the tuberculosis research guys were saying that in India the big challenge was just to get people to test for tuberculosis. They don't even want to take the test because there's an immense social stigma, stigma to it. And if you even have it latent form of tuberculosis that's not even active and you're not even like spewing or anything, uh, that can mean your ass. Like no one's going to marry you. Your family might disown you. They may not want to have anything to do with you. And, and, and that's, what that's what worries me because we think about how we've eradicated diseases here. With, you know, such as penicillin. But then we're talking about the EpiPen. How the EpiPen has gone from $100 to $700. Right. I mean, this is an issue. I mean, like... We, do we live in a society where we're now favoring to use developed medicines to help people, or is it just a for-profit? It seems like That's it's... That's the situation in the States, so. though, yeah. where, where the medical trade is it's very just, much for-profit. It's unbelievable. Yeah, so the same thing in Canada. Well, it's the same drug companies, but it's regulated here, right? Right, it's just regulated here. It's strange and it's covered by Medicare. Strangely, what's happening is the tech industry is starting to come to the rescue of of the third world with these little startups that are, for instance, that problem that it's, I told you about, about the, like the shame around getting tested is, uh, you know, these guys are coming up with apps and little plug-in things to your mobile phone that allow you to test and send the results directly via satellite to the center. And they'll tell you if you have to come and pick up pills, no one has to see you go into the clinic no one has to see you go into... You to become a social pariah. Yeah, it's honest. <clears throat> you can keep it private, right? Mm. Just like some guys developing uh, uh, these USB uh, stoves to right. to fight uh, indoor... Um, Fires? Um, carbon monoxide? Carbon monoxide poisoning that's that's rampant in India and in yeah, third yeah. world from uh, indoor indoor cooking uh, on live fires. And like they're, they're trying to get these little mini stoves out that can do everything and charge their phones because that's apparently a whole other issue for sure getting phones charged because everyone's on mobile some people have to walk like 
for four hours to the next town and pay to get their phone charged. Right. Have just you seen those bicycles that they, they came up with that just like somebody needs to be bike, cycling all cycling the time yeah. it, uh, and know, it's charging like your cell phones? And it, no, it just powers the whole village. It powers the whole so thing. So you just keep, you just go on shifts and be like, that makes, you're gonna, that makes perfect sense. That's great. Yeah. That's why I'm wondering about what are the great places to invest because, you know, Elon Musk and his company, they're coming out with these kind of the, these batteries for homes. Yeah. yeah. And the solar-powered, like, um, roof tiles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just realize, you look, at, you look at how, as we say, like, the majority world needs energy. And, and, you're, and you're looking at, like, how many people are out there that aren't connected, that aren't, like, hardwired to major infrastructure. Right. And I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at some of these kind of, these developers, and you're like, wow. It's incredible like, what they're doing. What are they going to do? for the planet and it's about profit but it's also there's some genuine kind of I'm, I'm wondering if Elon Musk is going to meet with an accident at some point because I, I see the way he's operating and I see the kind of projects that he's bringing to bear and a lot of them seem to have, be motivated by pure altruism and pure wanting the humankind to overcome its, its basic greed over finite resources and I'm, I'm just like he's going to he's got to be the number one enemy to the power people to the oil people to but he's the, making money too so he's making money yeah, yeah. But, but he's developing things that are going to break those dynasties right it's it, eventually they have the potential to completely break those dynasties but at the same time all the other car companies doing the same thing i mean like you know google's partnering up trying to drop their technology was it ford or gm announced last week that they're going to be there'll be self-driving electric cars right by 2021 that will have no steering wheel no gas pedal so no control so i think all the i mean you're seeing these inventors who are kind of spurring things on but at the same time you know if if you're caught on the wayside if you don't see the future coming then you're doomed to kind of to go bust so i so i think that what he's doing i think other people are taking notice and they're i think they're seeing like trends it's a huge undertaking as well. Like it's like he's not going to be able to get the world off of uh, oil immediately. Like it's it's kind of something that's going to happen gradually sure. over like the next ten twenty years. But that's also going to kind of happen at the same time as we're running out of oil. So I, you know, it's it's not like it used to be where it was like a fringe element that was interested in all alternate. Uh, energy sources sustainability and such right? yeah now it's kind of like it's it's in the public uh, consciousness finally yeah, yeah. Every, everybody is interested in these these types of things and Except they realize that we can't continue doing what we're doing well yeah but that's the thing is that at the same time those people that are disconnected from the the infrastructures have a lot to gain by the first worlds pushing these technologies because like with mobile phones they can skip steps and there's a harmful aspect to it but you know instead of going through the coal and the oil and all of those steps the industrial revolution that they never went through they can just go right to solar energy where and it's often in places where there's a fuck ton of solar sun period yeah exactly Um, it's renewable so like I can definitely see the benefits of that in a a place like India um, where it could immediately have tremendous Benefit, but at the same time, what is this the, benefit? The sun is very strong in India. <laughs> yeah, they could be supplying the rest of the world with power. 
if they just got on bicycles. Yeah, <laughs> or solar, uh, solar. Energy. Yeah, how how cow dung? We've got lots of cow dung. Let's keep using it. We can cook with it. Or if we could just put little uh, power, like battery collectors, on every bicycle in China, Mm -hmm. uh, they could basically power every house every night. I'd had that idea at one point was to open a gym, and then have all the bicycles kind of selling power back to the grid. Yeah. But at the time, like you wouldn't be able to generate enough juice for it to be valuable from the bike. The guys that that came up with with the bike that runs like a whole village. They really came up with like a new technology to allow and for it's, and it's functioning now. It's like working. Yeah, it's working. Yeah, it's working. Well, there's actually condos, condominiums here. Um, I'm not sure here exactly where, but that have that like you know those all-in-one condos where yeah. you have the gym at the bottom and the pool at the on, on the roof. The gym um, uh, spinning like the bicycles are hardwired to actually heat the pool. <laughs> either heat the pool i mean i don't know how much of an output it is but every, every revolution is je- is feeds some battery that's there as a backup for the the condominium that's uh, cool that's great which is a great idea for sure but again i think <laughs> the problem with all of this is like clean burning energy food for everyone to me has one sort of problem with it is it means more people hmm. less people dying more people being born and comfort and and I'm like, what is that driving to? We, we well, s- I think you hit the nail on the button with food. The more mouths on this planet. Yeah. I mean, how are you going to... I mean, seriously. You can't feed them with solar energy. I mean, what percentage of the planet depends on kind of fish as a daily kind of, as a daily kind of uh, source of nutrition? And they say there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish in 2050. That fish, we don't, we're, might only have kind of like mono aquatic culture. I mean... It, that's the whole issue. I mean, like, I mean, what are we going to feed people? Soylent. Soylent. Soylent green. No, but, that, but that's, <laughs> that's the whole issue. Did you hear about, about insects? You know? And also, and like, I mean, there are, there's, there's an institute for future weather in the United States that just came out with the, they did these kind of future patterns of, uh, of rising temperatures. And they look at a city like Boston that only has one or two days a year where the weather is above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, they're mapping it so that 2060, it could be 28 days. By 2100, it could be 100 days. And you're seeing how... Like, you're talking about weather manipulation now? They're saying that with these changing weather patterns with global warming, there's going to be a lot more drought. And in main areas, like even how it could be affected in Canada. Uh, so it's kind of how do we manage all of, all of this? And what's really kind of... Cons- what's really kind of... Uh, something that's been in, in, the, in the paper the last couple of days... There is a small town uh, in Wisconsin that just got the permission. They're not on the Great Lakes. They're inland. They got, just got permission to tap water and take water from the Great Lakes for personal consumption. And now there's a number of U.S. states and Canadian provinces that, that, are, that, are, that are trying to fight this decision. But you know what? Water is, you know, we're talking about food, but Here's water, water is liquid gold. Mm. Everybody need like everyone's saying that like in another twenty years, Mexico City won't be able to have any water whatsoever because they've depleted all of the resources. So where is this water coming from? Where is mm. the next series of kind of global conflicts? <coughs> resources. Resource war. Yeah, yeah. resource wars. Water is gonna be the big one. We have like two point five percent, I think, of the world's drinkable water. I think we have a lot more than that. Yeah, it's way cool. higher. Is it? It's. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. We should. We should <coughs> Google that. But Canada has enormous amount. Well, 2.5 is nothing to scoff at. Like, that's a tremendous amount. 
but uh, that's the stat I remember. But I could I could be wrong about that. But yeah, that, there's no question. But that's what I'm saying is that that to me is always the weird side thought that I have whenever somebody you know exalts some new like technology that's going to bring um, you know common good and prosperity to everyone. Yep. I'm just thinking people are just going to have more babies because they can do seven percent. Seven percent. That's 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 huge. Um, so start investing in stocks in Canadian water, right? Canadian now. water is that possible? <laughs> is that even possible? Well, I just heard that Nestle is extracting water. Yeah, they're dirty in fuckers. Ontario right now. They're dirty fuckers, Nestle. And and I've seen it on social media where people are trying to kind of yeah, they've done environmentalists are like why why you know why is Nestle and they're they're drilling out of like the with water imp- table impunity yeah with I impunity saw, yeah it was like the CEO or something like he he did a, he did a talk and it was like straight face said that water is not a human right and that it should be a commodity so that it can be taxed yeah he's out of his fucking mind but the nestle but, is, but, is but you know what horrible i i completely disagree because i think water is should be a, people are also saying that the internet should be a human right too and air conditioning should be a human right as well but the city of montreal it was crept up in the media yesterday that they might start taxing for water and for yeah. garbage yeah it's true. so you know what Get used to it, folks. Which you're already paying for. We're already paying for it. We're already paying for garbage, and we're already paying. And for what's water. next? A breathing tax? Yeah. No, oxygen is not a right. You have to pay for your oxygen. Like, do you remember those old ads? Those old pollution ads from the '80s, where the, the, the dystopian ads with like the breathing booths, where this guy's like uh, uh, panhandling, and somebody finally puts a couple of coins in his hand, and it's like a dusty. Yeah, I think, I think and I he like pumps the coins into a machine. So he can get a couple of hits of like fresh air, uh, and at that point, you know, there was pollution hysteria. But you're like, well, now we're not too far away from that, uh, as it were. I remember being in Beijing in 19- speaking of air 1998, and seeing a purple sunset because there was so many, so much pollution in the air that it had an effect on like the color spectrum. Supposedly now, like there, there have been, there's they've been selling Canadian Air last year in Beijing, but now they're actually they're building these high-rise, like filter, filter air filtering. They look like high-rise buildings that 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 they're not buildings. They they're just they're gonna start filtering air. Wow. Like an air processing unit that's like a building. Does that even work? Well, like they're they're working on it. So you're gonna start having you're gonna start having cities with these man-made structures that are it's their job to suck in all the pollutants and then send clean air out. These are I read this in comics. Like they were, they were I remember reading this in the comics. Yeah, book. but Jay, I remember looking at Dick Tracy when he had that watch that had Radio video. Watch, yeah. We never thought that was gonna happen. <laughs> it's here, and yeah. then some. Yeah, and then some. No, it's crazy, man. Yeah, I, I, I remember. I just want teleportation to arrive. That's what I'm. That's what I could really benefit from. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to arrive and <coughs> wait a good five years before I try it hmm. because the first generation of anything sucks. <laughs> and that's one thing you don't want to step into until uh, that's right. all the accidents have happened. And even if it works perfectly, maybe it steals your soul. Maybe it steals your soul. You never know. If it, there is it, such it a thing. It destroys you at the, at the origin point and then reconstructs you from the, at the end point. Oh, so you're from not like, really you? From like, it's not you. It's really just a doppelganger, or yeah, it's a it's a clone mm-hmm. of you. How because can, yeah, cause, cause how could you transfer all the memories and <clears throat> your mind? And that's right. But all the molecules that are that are part of your body would be dissipated and then reassembled from molecules that are around that unit on the other side of the well, planet. It's funny because a couple of years ago I made this film about a Canadian filmmaker named Frank Cole who was murdered in the Sahara. He crossed the desert by himself and 
He did it twice. On his second trip, he was in a, he was murdered. But he actually made plans to be cryogenically frozen. Okay. And so even though they found his body, which was just skeletal remains, his family still kind of brought his body back from Timbuktu and put it in, in a cryogenic facility in Detroit. Now, when I was trying to get permission to film uh, at this location, I had to pretend that I wanted to be frozen as well. So me and my editor, Prem Akamar, we went to this cryonics barbecue party in toronto off the damn cryonics barbecue party it was weird it sounds contradictory it was very strange (laughs) the vast majority of people that were in a cryonics at this party were russian computer programmers and scientists so i went to detroit where all these bodies are uh all these bodies i met people and i I had to ask them you know kind of like your question about your mind or your memory i'm like well once your body dies who cares they can bring your body back to life what about your memories Hmm, what about what, who? What about who you are? That's what you are. Yeah. And so, a lot of people, what they do is that actually they leave photographs, they leave audio recordings, they it's leave like pictures memento. and albums, yeah, for some kind of to help them remember who they are. But Jesus, you die, you die. Super creepy. Mm-hmm. You die and you die. I read this sci-fi story one time um, where it's a dystopian future, and there's this um, <clears throat> there's this mad cult called the Human Club or something like that, the Hunters Club, and they just periodically go out and commit like acts of murder and and just shoot people as a a group and they're kind of like yokels a little bit but they have like high-tech weaponry and they just shoot people and they have to live inside of these mega cities because outside it's like irradiated wasteland and at some point one of them uh one of the leaders uh takes this huge outing like they all get into these these um uh, vehicles and they roll out into the desert because he's got this huge surprise for them and he goes over in the desert in the middle of nowhere and he like unearths this like console and he starts pressing buttons and this dome starts to rise from the from the ground like with this huge re- religious music like playing like this gospel music and everyone's just like what the fuck is this and lo and behold they find out that basically their leader did some research and found out about a bunch of these this cult from a hundred years ago that all went into cryogenic sleep uh, until uh, they were called the the children of tomorrow or something like that, and they were going to wake in the glorious utopia for a hundred years from now and reap the rewards of of the, of their the kingdom that was promised them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And these guys found them, and they basically awake them. And as this religious music is like blaring and all these people are coming out of their stupor dressed in their like weird cult outfits, these guys are just lined up outside with rifles and start like gunning them down, like, sh- <laughs> like shooting, like fish in a barrel. <laughs> it's the darkest fucking thing ever. But uh, all this to say is like all of these science fiction stories that I read as a kid, like it's starting to really come true. Not just the cool rocket pack stuff, not mm-hmm. just the jets and stuff, but like the air purifying skyscrapers uh people being mulched into food <laughs> you know and this kind oh, of but it's funny but science like science fiction literature is an influence for those who are designing today like Pretty ideas much. are coming yeah. from those from from this canon right right mm-hmm. and but to be fair a lot of the guys that wrote the, that stuff were kind of science nerds right and were kind of speculating on where this technology could go and kind of took like a logical reasoning of like where this would might go so it's not entirely left field prophetic but yes you're right like it's all interesting to see how people have visions of the future 
Yeah. And you, there's tons of examples. You look at Fritz Lang's Metropolis. That was set in today's time. It wasn't set in the year 2000. Or was it? What year Metropolis? It was yeah. Fritz Lang's Metropolis? I think so. I think I, I mean, I'd have to check, but it, but it, it wasn't that far in the future. And so and you, you look at a number of these science fiction films or other artists. There was also something that was trending online last week. There was a series of photographs by Paris-based artists showing what the world would look like in the year 2000. And they're so far-fetched. It's nothing like what it is now. Because Some things are there. Like but the hover cars. And because they're hover hope, cars, yeah. But it's because of uh, idealism, right? Because we're, we're not factoring in human mediocrity and politics and war. We're just imagining these futures based on pure idealism of like the potential of humanity. Of so, of course, everything is flying around and people are like communicating telepathically because you're not factoring in all the shite that's in the way of that and how we're going to kind of remain the same and crappy in certain ways and impede certain inventions <coughs> over others or discover that we don't actually want certain technological advances. I think the Google Glasses was a good example of that where it's a logical next step in, in that kind of technology, but socially we don't want it because it's just too fucking weird. Well, I think the problem is people are getting beat up for wearing the glasses. That's one There's thing. There's cases of people wearing Google Glasses in bars in San Francisco and they're getting assaulted. Right. Yeah, because people didn't want to actually be filmed be all filmed. the time. Yeah, you have no control over like when they're called glass holes. Glass holes, yeah. yeah. Well, that's one example. Or uh, I or saw. They were. I don't think that anyone's holding on to it at this point. No, I mean, where are they now? The glass holes. That's what <laughs> science fiction and futurism doesn't doesn't really take into account. Is do we want it? And right. the question is, technology advances only as fast as we want it to, because there are certain things that we just don't want. Uh, yeah, like you'd say with the communicator. Yeah, the Star Trek communicator is a perfect example. Do you want somebody being able to just fucking ping you whenever they want? And Without you, you answering. And you phone. can't even, you know, like, ah, you know, Mr. Matthews. And you're like, oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> what can I do for you, you know? Just no. give me a second here, please. Just, just give me a second here. I'm, uh, I'm rearranging furniture. But the point is that, yeah, there's that factor. And I think that's what factors that that's what produces that overly idealistic and then people in then going like where are our flying cars it's 2016 where's our jetson swag uh, that's want, coming that's coming i don't want the flying cars i want a flying car people yeah. can drive the regular ones yeah, exactly they can't navigate At any the point like some asshole can come like, oh, no, i know, but, I know what i'm saying is that second I, like, story like, like been, how i mean it's been a century that we've had these rules and, and we, we spoke about this it. recently and we're talking we're entering the age of self-driving cars but who would would you get into a computer that's doing 100 kilometers an hour that has no steering wheel i mean personally i mean i'm frightened i wouldn't get into the first one (laughs) was there there been one fatality there already was one like i said five years five years later if they're still around that's generally it's like you know the way canada waits for the u.s to test new drugs on their populace first and then if if the result if there's no like horrific mutations then the canadian pharmaceutical companies like okay let's let's introduce this to the canadian people i'd like to do that with technology too it's like cool story bro let me wait five years yeah i won't be an early adopter not sure. an early adopter when it comes to i love it because i have to drive around to boston once a week so i would actually i'd be able to sleep leave at night and sleep well yeah, it's great. called a train bro <laughs> there's no train directly. there's no train there's no train directly in montreal you have to go to new york no bus? Why would I want to take the bus? Yeah, the bus is horrible. The bus is kind of like a self-driving car. The bus is Greyhound. Car. The buses haven't been changed since the 1970s. They oh. smell like 
like homeless piss. Like an old, like an old and, gym. <laughs> and you're stuck at the border for about an hour. Oh, really? And then it makes a number of pit stops. Yeah, so it's like a seven, eight-hour ride. Okay, so it's nonsense. I get down there in five. I guess I'd be more open to this driverless situation if it was on rails for some reason. If it was on some sort of, well, even if it's a magnetic rail. I know, but that, that's what they were talking about in, in the UK. They're talking about actually that how it would work is there would be one leading car and other cars could follow this car on the highway and they, they all link up. And so you basically have these they, caravans they, they of, of vehicles. Yeah. But... We don't eat them to fly, though. I guarantee you that's a bad idea. Black ice. Did you say black guys? Black ice. Oh, black ice. <laughs> Weather. I mean, I, I, just, I just don't. You know, I, I still, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Would, would you get on a self-flying 747 with 500 people going to Hong Kong? Not well, the first one. They essentially are self-flying. This is just true. The pilot's only really there for the takeoff and landing. Most public transportation actually, is they're, they're, actually they're using the same technology for self-driving cars as they've had for years and years in, in airline industry well, didn't that fucking nutcase that uh, nosedived the plane in <coughs> France you know that dude that like locked mm-hmm. himself in the yeah, cockpit the German, uh, the German. Luftwa- Lufthansa Lufthansa or anyway I, no it wasn't Lufthansa it was it was a lesser known airline right it was a budget airline didn't he disable from Barcelona to yeah didn't he disable the because the, there's a there's an automatic thing that it was on autopilot and then that goes it, off if you start making movements that are too erratic it starts like it starts mm-hmm. to scream but yeah he's right about that it, um, all the subways are automated uh for the most part really? yeah they don't drive those fucking things anymore well, there's somebody there there's somebody in the front of each subway yeah but they yeah. just open the doors and close the doors and that's it and they may not even be doing do that, that anymore yeah the no, new trains? They're, they're there just for your like sense of security to put like, you at perception yeah. kind of like the tsa yeah, they're, they're doing dick and for emergencies, right? If like there's a if they need to stop the train, I'm still not convinced that, that this is true. <laughs> We're not. I'm still not convinced, and I'm, I'm still there's human error. Well, there's also sometimes there's freak accidents, there's weather. You know, well, we had to talk about this the other day about the the issues with ethics because by automating things, um, if intelligent computers, at some point the question becomes what ethics do you program it with? Well, that's the whole thing. Artificial intelligence is already here, right? And can they make the same choices that you make in that fraction of a second? First, can they make them? And according to what set of values are they operating, right? Are you giving them Judeo-Christian values? Have you ever seen Maximum Overdrive? Yes. Stephen King? Yes. sure. That's the kind of shit we're (laughs) talking about. It's a good way to get rid of everyone. Everyone's a self-driving car and they just suddenly just all aim for... It's just called a herd. Well, okay, so before we wrap this up, I do... This is going to be a bit left field, but now that I have you on the record, having been peripherally one of my professors at uh, film school, what did you really think of my second year? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Which one? Do you remember Imprint? The one that I did? Oh, the science fiction film. Yeah, in spite of... Yeah, well, I I remember being on the jury and uh, and meeting with you and and encouraging you to... To do it anyway. To do it anyways, yeah. Yeah. Because the the whole idea is that, you know, you... Working in film, it's 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 continually you get more no's and yeses, and in life in general. And and, and <laughs> while though I like the jury system, and I employ it when I teach film now, I, I still think that sometimes you can't assess a film on paper, you know. But you were very passionate and driven, and you you pulled it off, you know. Yeah. Now just to give you the background, like my second year, I I proposed somewhat of a bold idea and uh i remember yeah the jury was um 
well they didn't they didn't feel it and uh, I, I fucking did it anyway and uh, Corbett was one of the people who was like yeah, yeah, yeah man fucking do it. do it do it I remember years ago there was this once I forget his name but he had pitched a zombie a zombie comedy Zomcom a Zomcom and it wasn't chosen <laughs> and this guy said fuck you I'm making it anyways he made it and he won a number of national awards I mean it was it was like called a rotting hot rotting love zombie love song and it was set with a bunch of zombies in a bar it was really entertaining but part of the problems too is sometimes you want to do something that's entertaining and you know when you're in an art school sometimes they're looking for kind of oh my god I got know. so sick of that so fast especially the time that I was there I don't know if this this was there previously or afterwards but there was this like almost uh, du- almost like a religious pretentious kind of pretentious uh, devotion to these fucking movies about mortality so like a bunch of 20 year olds mm-hmm. making films about mortality uh, or or casting kids where they were kids five years ago and now they think they can direct uh, children and make it meaningful and every other film was either a, a, a retirement home film or a goddamn cottage film right that, re- that retirement home film was good though wasn't that, that the, one that particular one wasn't that the actual the the uh, one with the dance yeah that one was good but the 19 other ones, however, were, were, were less so. That's <laughs> Pascal Plants film, man. Yeah. And it was basically just a bunch of, and I don't want to make this about color, but it was a bunch of little, little privileged white kids whose parents had cottages. And so, of course, that was the logical place to go and film whatever bullshit idea they had. And I'm, to a certain degree, I'm all for it because you're supposed to kind of be bullshit and figuring yourself out at that. But there was such a pretension uh, when I was going through, uh, that's why I like you as a student because you weren't, you didn't fit into that kind of, that mold. Yeah. And it's nice because people always tend to think of like, what does an artist look like? What does a director look like? And the, most of the times, they're they're completely different people. They, they you know they're you know. So that's why I liked having you because you had a whole different point of view when you're studying at the school of cinema. Yeah, and it's great to have that because you know, it's talking about diversity. If everyone thinks exactly the same way and they like the exact same films, then you're you're not really kind of creating anything new. I, I 100% agree. I also was, was on guys a, with like uh, indoor scarves. And oh, there was there was yeah, definitely oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was the Asian guy who immediately like showed up with the uh, Kira Kurosawa like hat and Ray Bans and you know there was all of that. But that's fine. <laughs> but I my only mission going in, apart from I was paying my own way, I had my first kid on the way, and I was working and I was, I was on nobody's fucking ticket but my own is I had almost a single-minded mission to come in there and I was like, I am not making a, any goddamn immigrant movies. I'm not making anything about my immigration. I'm not making anything about being from a cross-culture, newly arrived immigrant. I was like, that's easy and I'm sick of it and, and I just don't want to do it. I'm going to make something that's like nobody would know what the filmmaker looked like, right? Uh, and I got shit for it. Like I had teachers and students tell me, "Like, dude, man, like you, you should go with your background. You should go with your your story about how you got here, and or you should go back to go find your dad in Egypt, or you should go do this." And I was like, oh, "Maybe at some point, but like, but yeah, if you're not ready for it, though, that's that's, that's the only, not what I want that's, to do. That's your decision. The hardest thing, sci-fi. the hardest thing for any kind of artist or any filmmaker is to choose that project. And if you choose the wrong one." Uh, it could be disastrous. Yeah. So you have to follow your heart. And I just of- wanted to do science fiction. I fucking wanted to do science fiction. I love and, science fiction. And I think, and it, and it's been proven that like that it's the ultimate jar because everyone's doing sci-fi. Even superhero movies are science fiction, right? Have you seen uh, the trailer for uh, Denis Villeneuve's new film, Arrival? Arrival, yes. Are you expecting great things from that? 
Well, he's a really talented. A few filmmaker. of my colleagues have worked on worked on oh, that really? movie, did effects and stuff on it. Well, I mean, he's just such a talented filmmaker, and he's saw every film he turns out. There's just like he's he's a he's, he's a got such a, he's got such a range, yeah. you know. But he really understands what he understands the frame, he understands the tempo of the shot, he understands the rhythm of editing. He just he like he just really knows his stuff, and so I'm sure that. No doubt, it's. I mean, I mean, be he, a, I mean, I mean, his biggest challenge. I mean, you know, his next film is going to be the new uh, Blade Runner. Right. That's got to be. Imagine that you're chosen by the Hollywood establishment, and you're making the new Blade Runner film. I think I would Oof. run away. Can I you can you imagine no of, of what kind of pressure <laughs> I you're can't. on for that? And the original oh, cast is involved, and every ten minutes, uh, some other powerhouse celebrity signs on. Like I think Johnny Depp's got a part in it now, or some shit. Really? No, Jared Leto just got... Jared Leto has got, got a part in it, like, every, every 10 minutes. As well as a Canadian actor, uh, Ryan... Uh, Gosling? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's in it, but he's in it, like, pretty much. Uh, he's, he's, like, one of the... But speaking about original cast, what do you think about bringing back original cast members when they're, like, like 80? Like Edward James almost? Yeah, but he's kind of been 80 for a long time. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like 80. No, but, I mean, they have, they've actually they announced that... Not they're, a fan. They announced they're making, like, a new... Uh, um, Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, Ugh. and it's not going to be released in 2019. I'm like Harrison Ford looked pretty old, honestly, in the last in the Star, Star Wars. Wars you, you know, know? The yeah, big... but he's just going to do nostalgia films for like no, the rest of his. The big gambit here for here's the irony of this whole thing: Harrison Ford, for years, refused to do any continuation of his big hits, precisely for the reason that he was like, "No, that's behind me. I want to move on to new stuff." And then he held out for a really long time, and now he's kind of given in but now he's a hundred years old right so when he was sort of still in the in the age range where he could do another indiana jones he would like categorically refuse to do it and now that he's like barely you know coherent uh he he's he's like he yeah so i'll do it tired in star wars he's so tired he didn't he look tired I, I i really i felt bad I, for I, him I, no i felt i felt that was a really incomplete film it was i, I was I, I was really stoked and excited because i felt that what the new Star Wars film was doing it was bringing back the original cast and I, and I felt wow there's going to be some kind of real nostalgic moment but I felt the film was just structured so poorly and I really didn't care about these new characters and it was, there was plot holes galore yeah. I, I, I felt the film was, was short of a complete act that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, def there was definitely something lacking I'll give you that um, but I think that the if you if you take into consideration, you were talking about how much pressure Blade Runner Two is going to be. Uh, imagine how much pressure was on J.J. Abrams to repatriate all the people who basically were outraged by the prequels, to bring in a whole new generation or two of fans to pay tribute, but also open the way in some credible fashion to future productions and launch the whole new Disney dynasty of, of Star Wars film. Like, all the things he had to satisfy, when you take all of that into consideration, uh, I think the movie is fairly good. I think I mean, it's You made a good point about this too, Jason, about uh, how it was like kind of meta, how like the, the, the characters that they introduced were also fans of the old movie movies in a sense right? yeah like they're they're yeah that was a cool twist right like even the the new characters heard about the old star wars stories yeah. so I, I thought that i thought that was i mean really i mean i mean, I mean all of it my i, I just i just i just i mean i think jj abrams did a great job with star trek i think really the you well, have the, to go well, now well the first star the first star trek <laughs> 
Okay. I think he created, like, you know what I mean? And, you know, I was like, wow, I, I think he, he the casting was perfect. And However, what my issue with, with Star that Star Wars and the new Rogue One, oh, my God, another Death Star. Right. Another yeah. Sam Planet. It's like, and that's what I think. Like that, we're caught in a loop. Well, would you, we're here when Lucas came out and he criticized it. He's like, hey, there's so many new worlds, so many new worlds, new things, new people, new characters. And then he had to apologize. Yeah, yeah that's right. You went uh, off script. You went off script, but I, I do agree. I mean, I, I felt I'm, I'm like, oh wow, a, a new Death Star. Oh, oh wow, I haven't. This is this. You know, come on. Yeah. And I feel this. The well, in Force Awakens, that was easily the weakest part, where they're literally rolling their eyes as they're discussing the the end game, in the when they have to hit that other planet, whatever that weapon, and yeah, they're all around the map. They're literally rolling their eyes. They're like, ah. Even yeah. though someone's showing how much bigger than the original Death Star is, I was like, whatever. And I like Adam Driver, but I did not feel that he was a convincing antagonist whatsoever. Really? He did not install one bit of fear in me. I don't think he was meant to, though. And and I think he was meant to capture that insecurity of new generation once again in a meta way, kind of trying the to be... The Knights of Ren! The Knights of Ren! I think... I think <laughs> if they do it right in the next episode, he'll become the villain that you want him to be. I think we needed to see... This was his scary, scared shitless... According to fans, they think that... Trying to be a badass. They're thinking that Rey is actually going to be the villain. No, that's, that's, that's possible. That's the latest kind of fan that came out today. All right. Really? They're going like to reverse roles? Why they not? Think they think that she might be... Because the... Well, I can't... There's a spoiler I heard. There's so much, so many, so much speculation. But no, but the actual... the. Like the script. Was oh yeah, leaked. I forgot this. You like was, to spoil things. The Go. script was leaked. Oh really? But supposedly there's like there's a scene in the new Star Wars where it's not like Luke, I'm your father, but Luke says you are my father. To, to, to Ray. What? Supposedly she's a virgin birth, and it's the what are those elements of life? Those chlorofluoridians or whatever they're called. Midichlorians. Midichlorians. I thought they were not going to mention midichlorians. Yeah, I thought that like they killed that. No, that's got to be a hoax. See. But thanks for fucking with my head. Uh, you know what? I did lose friends. I actually wrote on Facebook, Damn it, JJ Abrams, why did you kill Chewie? <laughs> <laughs> and I lost about 25 friends on Facebook. No. Really? Really? Yeah. They thought, like, you and son then, of a and, bitch. And then I also wrote, I wrote Kylo no, or Ben Solo. I just wrote Ben Solo. And I, I had a couple really good friends from high school. They, they're like, that's it. I'm. Yeah. You son of a bitch. You've ruined it for me. I can't believe you did this. That's funny. <laughs> That's a great game to play. Just trolling people with your uh, with spoilers, fake spoilers. But, uh, but uh, Chewbacca, it wasn't even Chewbacca. Chewbacca wasn't killed. Right. But I'm still, I'm like, wow, you can, you know, people still. In fact, not only was he not killed, he didn't even age since the last movie. In fact, he looked more haggard in Empire somehow. Yeah. No, but no, but, yeah, no, that's because the Wookiees lived to 300 years old, right? Sure. Yeah. Come on. They, 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 Clearly, they, I mean, hey, as, as the age. Wikipedia, check it out. And there was no conditioner. Wikipedia. In the 30s, yeah, it's Wikipedia. Now, now the Star Wars wiki is Wikipedia. Wikipedia, yes. Well, Wikipedia. Wikipedia, yeah. Okay, so uh, where can we see your work, man? Where, 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 tell me, tell us quickly what's out there that that that. You well, want. the India Space Opera just had its week long. Uh, uh, the French version of the film was just broadcast at the Cinémathèque Québécoise in early July. It will be playing on Super Channel again. Uh, at the end of the summer and over the next kind of year and a half, uh, it's available. Uh, uh, it's available on demand through Rogers. Uh, I will be having another screening in Montreal soon, but the next, the next, the next screening is going to be at uh, in Minnesota. It's playing at the uh, American Conference for um, Ethnographic Film, 
and I'm just waiting for other, for other. And it's the response. I'm guessing is good. Are you are you getting some good feedback? Uh, are you getting controversy? No, I'm not getting controversy. I haven't showed it to an Indian audience yet, so yeah. I'm pretty sure that because the whole question, like here, I'm 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 a Canadian. I'm I'm. A white English right. guy, and who are you to? Who am I to go to India and kind of turn my camera? Because what's interesting is there was that controversy uh, this past year at the at the Rencontre uh, Internationale de Quimantar, where there was a a Quebec filmmaker who did a movie called Of the North, Dominic Gagnon, and he basically just sourced all this. He does found footage films, but he took all these found footage videos from YouTube, and he edited a film of what is life like in the North. But he was deemed a racist, and it created a real big polemic, even though the film has won international awards. So I'm really conscious about the idea of representing somebody else, and, and who am I? But I had a really good Indian research team, and, and also there's, there's, there's the film. I mean, I, I say the same story. One of the best things I ever learned, I had a professor at Concordia um, who was at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Lefebvre, who was at a, the Cannes Film Festival in the late... 70s with a film and there was a Hungarian film that was playing but the director had, hadn't arrived yet the director was actually at the airport so they played the film and for two hours there was a debate about the significance of all the low camera angles the film was all only low camera angles and people were debating everything within the frame and when the director finally arrived the director was a midget and the reason why everything was, was a low camera angle is because the director had to see through the camera so I can get attacked for the film, but you know what? There's also what happens during production. What you see on the screen is only one part of the story. There's, there's the making of it, which also... And yeah. so I'm telling you that my crew, we went through hell making this film. Plus you're a midget. Sexual assaults. Uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're attacked. I'm a midget. Uh, all those things. So we'll see. But I mean, yeah. Small right, person. Yeah, right so. now, I mean, it just, the, the film is just getting going, and I'm actually waiting to hear back from other festivals. So right. we'll we'll see. I'll keep you posted. But uh, yeah, please do. Uh, what about your other work? Like where? Yeah, I've got another film that uh, I just got a grant for. It's about um, the worst mass murder in Montreal's history. It's about the Bluebird arson, where thirty-seven young people were killed in nineteen on September first, nineteen seventy-two. These three young Montrealers set fire to the entrance of a bar and killed thirty-seven people. So it's kind of a film about memory and for and forgiving. And uh, I'm shooting that film now, and I got a couple other shorts that I'm working on. I, I actually want to get back to making like films that don't cost any money, because I, I I hate the idea of waiting for doing international productions. Like if I go back to India, I got to raise another six hundred thousand dollars minimum to do that that uh, that uh, Crimes of Love film, and it takes a long time. So when you do these long films, you're you f no one knows what you're doing. You feel out of it. You feel like you haven't done anything, but you're working on something. So I I want to work on some. I got a couple other films too that I'm working on that are low budget films that don't require any and money. And any of this stuff can be found on Netflix, YouTube, any uh, of these places? I have a film that's going to be uh, The Man Across Sahara is, is soon to be uh, on demand on the National Film Board of Canada. If not, go check out my uh, Vimeo webpage. Send me a message. I'll send you a private link to the so, India Space Opera. Right. So Because my, my whole theory is I get money from the arts councils to make films. The arts cancels is public money. It's your tax dollars. I want to give my film away. I don't want to charge people for it. I've already taken money in the first place. That's a good way. Of so, it. so you know, so I mean, just kind of, yeah. I can't, I can't put it online for free because my broadcaster will be upset. But if you do want to contact me, my Facebook, I can send you links to some of my films online. Cool. You know, so you don't have to pay. 
Are you at all on social media at all? Are you? I'm on Facebook, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not on Twitter yet. I've been told that I have to be on Twitter, but I, I don't. I don't tweet. You don't tweet yet? No. Yeah, that's probably I for don't the tweet. best. I'm, yeah, I'm a twit, but I don't tweet. <laughs> <laughs> so for all movie fake spoilers, tune into Corbett's uh, uh, Facebook page and uh, friend him and unfriend him as he reveals fake uh, spoilers about movies that you you care about. Cool, man. So uh, thanks, listen. guys. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you. Great. Thanks this for the beer. It's been a pleasure. It's kind pleasure. of a weird, weird honor to have you here because, like, I consider you um, a friend, but also you kind of had a hand in shaping my view on uh, filmmaking and stuff. And I, well, that's, so that's, I, that's what a, a good teacher is. A good teacher is also supposed to kind of get a fire in your belly going, you know? Yeah. Well, I appreciate and, it. And, and, you, and you have to, anybody's making art, you have to keep making it and you got to, and you got to believe in yourself and trust those ideas. Yeah. But you know, you were one of the, if not the only guy, one of the only guys that talked sense uh, to, to everybody. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Then that's sad. Then. No, in class, <laughs> I'm not outside. It was incoherent, but inside class, you were one of the only voices of reason in terms of like, I mean, in producing. Yes. That was a fun class, though, because I had like, the fact that came and all that. You were the only person pushing that envelope of saying, guys, all these ideas are wonderful. There's a real world waiting for you out there, and you need to start fucking thinking about making these projects. No one's going to give a shit the second you graduate about your little oh. short film. You need to get out there. Nobody else was saying this. Everyone else was talking about these lofty artistic ideas. You're one of the only people. Well, and I, 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 I do remember being that. on a panel at Concordia, and we were talking about budgets in the industry and i remember a couple people in film studies at say why are we talking about the industry why are we talking about business why are we talking about this like they resented it in some they, stupid well no because they only want to have a conversation about aesthetics and art and all that but the fact of the matter is filmmaking is an expensive industry yeah. it's an expensive art form you get millions of dollars to 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 make films guess what it's not just about the creative process it's also about accounting yeah you don't do that you go to jail I mean, I mean. So the fact of the matter is, filmmaking is also a business. It's not. I really did appreciate that. I did appreciate that, and uh, it's just, it's just cool seeing you again, man. Good man. Let's have another beer. Please come back. Uh, Cheers. And we'll, we'll shoot the shit again. I will.